Good evening. As you can see, um, Socrates didn't make it, so uh, Eric asked me to come instead. So we try to do what we can. And uh, actually, I shouldn't say Eric. I should say uh, Woody Allen stand-in. But uh, <laughs> that's that's a pretty good introduction. Um, thank you very much for inviting me here. Thank you, Eric, for arranging it, and many others, and for those who have. Uh, uh, supported this. Uh, it's, it's a terrific opportunity. It's delightful. I get to see friends I really don't see unless I come to New York or unless they come to Washington, and that's, that's a real bonus for me. And um, I, Washington isn't very far away, but curiously enough, uh, sometimes you get stuck in one place or the other and you don't get to make the trip that you'd like to make, so this is a wonderful opportunity. And uh, since I'm flying to China tomorrow, it's rather nice to uh, stay here also and get to know you. Um, does God have a foreign policy? Um, it's a deliberately, flippantly expressed question. Uh, and I'll get into why I've chosen this way of dealing with it in a, in a moment. But... Um, I think it's important to understand that uh, we're dealing with this question at a time when it's almost as though there is a countdown to war. There may not be, and uh, I certainly pray there isn't a war, for everybody's sake. But uh, it, it certainly has seemed that our nation is uh, um, sort of being prepared for a possible engagement with Iraq, and um, that still could be on course, or it could be uh, it could be forestalled by events within Iraq itself, and we'll all have to see how that works out. But obviously, with that looming over us, it's a, an important time to look at this topic. Um, before we even consider the question of war, I, I, I do hope you all know the real difference between heaven and hell. Some of you may not, but I'm going to tell you what it is. Heaven is a place where the police are British, the chefs are French, the mechanics are German, the lovers are Italian, and everything's organized by the Swiss. And hell is a place where the chefs are British, <laughs> the mechanics are French. The lovers are Swiss. <laughs> the police are German. <laughs> and everything's organized by the Italians. <laughs> so with that in mind, let's, let's go on to issues of war and peace, having gotten heaven and hell out of the way. First of all, um, what do I mean by God? Uh, that's kind of a stupid question to raise, but there used to be a program that was very popular actually in World War II in Britain called Any Questions? And there were a group of uh, radio program, of course, luminaries who would appear on this program, one of them being the famous or then famous Oxford philosopher A.J. Eyre. And uh, listeners would, would write in their, their um, but this is long before email, of course they use pen and ink and paper and all that stuff, write in their questions, and it would be, does the panel think? And then it would be some huge topic about the existence of God or the existence of life after death and all that stuff. And A.J. Eyre, in response to almost every question, 
would, would start by saying, well, it all depends what you mean by, and then he'd come up with whatever the topic was. And of course, when we talk about does God have a foreign policy, one of the obvious points is it all depends what you mean by God. So let me clear the ground there. I mean the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Hebrew scriptures, or what Christians call the Old Testament, uh, whom I believe to be the same God as the Christian God, but not the same God as the God of Islam, for all kinds of reasons having to do with God's character as expressed in the Quran. Uh, for one thing, Christians believe that God is a father. Islam has 99 words for God, but not one of them is a father. Now, I respect Islam, I respect people of Muslim faith, and I do not wish to, to express anything um, uh, disrespectful, but it is a different position, and I think it's important for us to, to look at that, especially as we move through what I want to, uh, to deal with here. If you read about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament, you find that God has very, very clear views on a lot of things. And uh, one of those things he has very clear views on is what we would probably call foreign policy. Uh, it is striking if you read the first five books of the uh, Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament that the Jews call the Torah, how much there is stated by God through, uh, through the prophet Moses in discussions on Mount Sinai and then what Moses reveals to the Jewish people as they are en route out of Egypt into what became the Promised Land. It is striking how much discussion there is of how you deal with people who are not yourselves, not your own people, how you deal with aliens who are living among you, how you deal with enemies that you might run across, and so on. And what is very interesting, particularly in the Bible story, is it's very clear if you read this book, you don't have to read it very often or very deeply to understand that there was a historic purpose for the Jews leaving Egypt, coming into the land of Canaan, which became known as the Promised Land, and setting up their home there. There is a historic purpose of God. And uh, it raises all kinds of questions. Um, for example, why were the invading Hebrews or the Jews told basically to eliminate or at least to drive out the people who were already living there. Wasn't that a bit, a bit unfriendly, a bit aggressive? Well, it was aggressive, no question. But it's, people often forget that in the descriptions of the ways of life of the people living in the Promised Land, the land of Canaan, before the Jews arrived, it's, it says quite clearly that what they were doing had become really offensive to God. God really wanted to kick them out because they were so offensive in what they were doing. And I'm not going to go into all of the list of the sins of which they were guilty. But one of the most interesting ones, because it has historical echoes down through history, is that the people of the land engaged in child sacrifice. Their own children were sacrificed to... Uh, the local gods of Moloch, for example, in order to appease those deities and secure blessing and prosperity for their people. And 
the Bible makes it very clear that in God's eyes, this is extremely offensive. And that was one of the reasons that the Jews were basically given the authority by God to sweep in and clear out these people and bring an end to their idolatry and so forth. But the promises of the land of the promised land, the promises that God gave to the Jews that they would inherit this land and stay there were conditional. In fact, one of the other striking things, if you, if you want to sort of parse God's foreign policy, is all the way through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you have a sort of, if this, then that. And the, if the Jews are obedient to the laws of God, if they do what God tells them to do, uh, if they live righteous lives, then all kinds of blessings will come their way. But if they disobey God in all kinds of manner, in their personal lives and in their national lives, if, for example, they mistreat aliens living within them, if that is the case, then God will scatter them. He will drive them out. And, in fact, that whole theme of conditionality is very apparent when you read the whole of the, of the Old Testament. In fact, I, I use a system of uh, reading the Bible that was devised by a wonderful uh, Cambodian Christian pastor who sadly was, uh, was martyred during the rule of the, um, of the Khmer Rouge when they conquered Cambodia in 1975. I met him just a couple of weeks before he was uh, captured by the Khmer Rouge. And this Bible reading system enables you to read nine verses, nine chapters a day from nine different sections. And it's so divided that you read six chapters from the Old Testament and three from the New. So you actually get through the Old Testament uh, twice a year and the New Testament four times. But what is fascinating is comparing the warnings that you see Moses giving in the Torah with the denunciations of Israel by the prophets, by Jeremiah, by Isaiah, and all the others saying, this is what is happening to you because and it's a declaration that the Jews were in fact disobedient to God and one of the consequences was to be exiled from their own land and to be scattered among the nations. And the word we use for nation translated in most modern translations of the Bible is also the word for Gentiles. And for a Jew, it was a double insult, not only to be scattered from your own patrimony, your own homeland, but to be forced to live amongst pagans who didn't worship the same God and who indeed lived lives that were really very, uh, very wicked in their, in their views. Now, just as the blessing of God on the Jews is conditional upon Jewish behavior, so is the blessing, according to the Bible, upon the people who have relations with the Jews, the surrounding nations. One of the most quoted verses in Genesis is, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Which is usually interpreted to mean those nations or those individuals who are a blessing to the Jewish people will themselves be blessed by the Almighty. 
But as we go through, we find that even the nations which were used by God to bring judgment upon the Jews at certain times when the Jews were exiled in mass, or those nations which were somehow allowed by God to invade the land and to wreak uh, great destruction and punishment because the Jews were uh, misbehaving, even those nations, so to speak, given a certain license by the Almighty to be instruments of his judgment on the Jewish people, they are not allowed to be arrogant, to be cruel, or to believe that it's their own authority that has somehow enabled them to be instruments of this judgment. Uh, we find many Bible verses in the Old Testament um, denouncing people like the Assyrians and the Babylonians for having done what God called them to do, then kind of thumping themselves on the chest and said, boy, aren't we great? Look what, look what we have done to God's chosen people, the Jews. So there is always a double-edged sword about blessing and curse in the Old Testament both in relation to the, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, and in relation to all those nations who have uh, any relationship with them. Now, of course, it's generally assumed that the first United Kingdom under King David was established about 1000 BC in Jerusalem. Prior to that time, although the invading Hebrews, the Jewish people, had occupied parts of the country. They had not captured what was to become the center of Jewish worship and Jewish religious life and indeed Jewish national life, not just then but right throughout history, namely the city of Jerusalem. So the beginning of the Jewish imprint upon the land of Canaan or Palestine or Israel, however you want to refer to it, in terms of the capital in Jerusalem was about 1000 BC. But shortly after the death of King Solomon, King David's son, as you know, the Jews divided into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Samaria in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And both of those kingdoms were judged at different times according to the Bible in the form of being invaded by very uh, cruel foreign powers and being taken into captivity. The kingdom of Samaria was destroyed in 622 BC and the 10 northern tribes of Israel were taken into captivity and it's not known exactly what really happened to them. Some of them perhaps escaped or came back. Some of them managed to avoid the captivity altogether. But it's one of the great historical dramas, what happened to the ten northern tribes of Israel. And that question has led to all kinds of fairly bizarre groups in modern times claiming to be descendants of the lost tribes of Israel and so on. But the most important date is 586 BC, because that was when Jerusalem was itself which, of course, was the capital of the kingdom of Judah, captured by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And the leading families of the Jews were taken into captivity to, uh, to Babylon. And that led, to, of course, to the, some of the wonderful passages of Scripture, you know, of the, of the exiles longing to come back to Jerusalem. The amazing thing is 
that the Babylonians who conquered the Jews were themselves conquered by the Persians, a completely different group ethnically. The Persians were an Indo-European group linguistically, as opposed to the Babylonians who were, like the Jews, Semitic, spoke a Semitic language. And under the Babylonians, the fortunes of the Jews dramatically revived. Under King Cyrus, leading Jewish uh, families were allowed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. An amazing act of generosity by the conquering power that had conquered the Jews' own conquerors. In fact, it's, it's rather striking that King Cyrus, long regarded as, uh, by the Jews as a benefactor, was recalled by a recent American president, well, not all that recent, uh, President Truman. Truman, as you all, I'm sure, know, was instrumental in causing the United States to recognize the state of Israel in 1948 at a time when most of his foreign policy advisors and virtually the entire Department of State were adamantly against this on the not unreasonable grounds at the time that if if the United States recognized the existence of Israel, that would uh, call into question all of America's relations with countries in the Arab world. Well, Truman ignored that, and there's, there's been a lot of interesting speculation as to why. Some people say, well, he remembers his Sunday school teacher and the familiarity that he had with, with the ancient kingdom of Israel and the willingness to identify the modern state of Israel with the ancient kingdom and so on. But it's striking that at a, um, on an occasion when uh, some Jewish groups, I believe in New York City, were honoring President Truman after he had left the White House for that decision, they compared him with some great person in American history. And Truman interrupted and said, no, 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 no. I am Cyrus. I am Cyrus. Now, that's striking. The almost intuitive identi identification of, of uh, a president of the United States with an Old Testament figure, well, a historical figure, of course, King Cyrus of the Persian Empire, as a benefactor of the Jews. So what we might think of as purely a historical Old Testament theme has had profound reverberations in modern times. But just as there are blessings described in the Old Testament for nations that are uh, or individuals that are a blessing to Israel, so there are very serious warnings. I can find my scripture from Zechariah of those who take a hostile view. Zechariah 12:9. I will destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Zechariah, uh, Jeremiah 30, chapter 10. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. So that clearly seems to be both a warning to nations that want to rub their hands with glee at misfortune that comes to the Jewish people living in their land, or you could, you could also infer from that Jewish people today, 
uh, a warning of what happens to, to nations that become emphatically anti-Israel, at least on non-controversial ground in biblical times, and also, still dealing in biblical prophecy if you like, a promise that the Jews, even if they're terribly bad, will never be completely deserted by the Almighty. And of course, if you read the rest of Jeremiah, you find that uh, there is great promise of restoration to the land itself. All of this is fairly important because we in the United States have a key role that we are playing, whether we realize it or not, in the Middle East. We are certainly viewed by most of the people living in the Middle East, and I'm talking about people living in the Arab states there, as being disproportionately favorable towards Israel. Uh, we are regarded as being supportive of uh, a government which many Arab states there consider unjust and uh, oppressive towards Palestinians and so on. I'm not going to get into that whole issue, obviously. But clearly, the American position in the Middle East has profound ramifications if, if anything of those old biblical sayings still has any relevance. I was at a uh, conference in Washington last week at my think tank alma mater, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and it was a debate between evangelical Christians on two sides of the question, how should Palestinians be treated? Or how should, we, how should Americans respond to Palestinians? How should Americans respond to Israel? And uh, it was striking because there were some very fine people on both sides of the argument, and uh, a very good case was made by some Christian um, uh, professors that uh, the, 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 the obligation of Christians was actually to be supportive of fellow Christians, especially in that part of the world, and the only Christians really in the Middle East of, or in, in, in conjunction with Israel, in the vicinity of Israel, were of course Palestinian Christians. And therefore, our obligation as Christians would be to support Palestinian Christians. Not, they were saying, that we should be opposed to Israel, but our primary concern should be for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the people on the other side of the, of the argument did not say we should be we should have nothing to do with Palestinian Christians, but they said the obligation of Christians towards Jews is in a different category. And I just want to touch on that very briefly. I'm not really going to dwell on it too much because I want to get on to the main stuff. Throughout most of Christian history, the theology of the Catholic Church and then the Protestant Church was that all of the promises of God in the Old Testament to the Jews were taken over by the church once Jesus came. In other words, all of the promises of the restoration of Israel, the blessings to Israel, really meant the church. That's what the general doctrine was of most Christians throughout most of Christian history. It includes, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and indeed much of the Protestant Church. 
And that particular doctrine is called supersessionism, or sometimes replacement theology, the notion that the Christian church has inherited all of the promises declared in the Old Testament to the Jewish people. That policy, or well, I shouldn't say policy, that, that doctrine, that view, began to be challenged in the 19th century by a new theology uh, called dispensationalism. And again, I'm not going to ask you to take a position for or against. I'm, if you ask, if you're interested, I'll tell you where I am on this, but it's, it's not as important as, as another issue I, I want to get to. But dispensationalism was important because it focused on the prophetic unfolding of events as interpreted by the dispensationalists in the whole course of time, including, of course, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and perhaps the end of time when, as Christians believed, Jesus would come back. And dispensationalists set great store by prophetic unfolding. And the dispensationalist doctrines became very... Uh, very influential, perhaps even dominant, in much of fundamentalist and evangelical Protestant Christianity. They didn't really have much of an impact on the mainline denominations, on Presbyterianism and so forth. But nevertheless, through works in, in the 1970s of people like Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, they began to have a profound influence amongst many American Christians. And the dispensationalist doctrines persuaded many Christians in 1948 to believe, yes, Israel's reconstitution as a state probably was the fulfillment of prophetic uh, promise. And uh, that has been the position of most dispensationalists uh, up until this day. Before moving on to, to other stuff, let me just say this. I, actually, I, I better confess, I'm not a dispensationalist. Uh, I'm sorry to disappoint those of you who are, but that, I think, is less important than another question that I always like to raise before Christians, whatever their theology of the second coming happens to be, and that is this. Do you believe that the reconstitution of the Jewish people in their own state, on their own homeland, is purely historical accident? Something that just happened like, I don't know, Margaret Thatcher coming to power in Britain or uh, Clinton winning the election in the United States or any other historical or political event that doesn't necessarily have obvious sort of divine overtones. Is it something that just took place maybe like, uh, I don't know, the conflict between... Uh, well, of course, this is a serious issue but and I don't want to belittle it, but but many Americans would, would be kind of unable to make any strong argument on the debate between India and Pakistan over Kashmir. It's a very complicated issue. I, I confess I have no definite answers. But one might say whoever is in the right is not necessarily a biblical issue. And they may be right by saying this. The question I say is, is the reconstitution of the state of Israel, is it purely happenstance of the order of India, Kashmir, India, Pakistan, squabble over Kashmir, or is there at least a suggestion 
that divine providence played a role. Again, I'm not going to, in this talk, address that unless you have particular questions on that. But it's a very, very important question. Because if you believe that the state of Israel is purely historical accident, then the course of American policy and, and global policy is very clear, it seems to me. But if it is not purely accidental, then there may be other considerations that we have to, uh, to bring in. So that's enough for the time being on sort of Old Testament Zionist stuff and so forth. We can talk about that in question time if you like. Fortunately, there is one marvelous injunction from one of the minor prophets in the book of Micah which I think is one of the best ways to answer the question, what do you think God wants you to do? And that's exactly the question raised in the book of Micah. And the answer is, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Three absolutely marvelous and unassailable injunctions that will apply to all of us, I think, in all circumstances, but certainly apply in the role of foreign policy. Now, Christians in the first three centuries of the Christian church had no connection with foreign policy. Why? Because they had no state power. They, in fact, were very often the victims, the targets of state power. Uh, it's actually, I only discovered this, you know, you learn wonderful things on the internet even when you're not looking for them. Um, I didn't realize until fairly recently that for the first 300 years of Christianity, virtually all Christians were adamantly opposed to the death penalty. Oh, you know, people, have, Christians have different views on this topic, but it's striking for the first 300 years of Christianity, Christians were, were dramatically against it. Why? Because they were very often the victims of the death penalty gone wrong. But in any event, that illustrates the fact that the Christians had no state power. And therefore, it was all sort of irrelevant what the Roman Empire did, whether this emperor or that invaded Decia or Britain or Gaul or wanted to expand the borders. All of that was just beyond their ken, beyond their concern. And it was only when Constantine established Christianity in 325 AD as the state religion that all of that changed. All of a sudden, the Christian church became established. Roman emperors identified their own power, their own position with Christianity. Roman emperors became personally involved in doctrinal disputes that we might consider today to be absolutely bizarre. Can you imagine an American president uh, becoming deeply involved over some extremely abstruse theological issue and making that a matter of state doctrine. Fortunately, we have separation of church and state, and I don't think that would be tolerated by any electorate. But one of the consequences of the identification of, the, of Christianity with state power was that as the Roman Empire declined, people began to accuse the Christians of being responsible for the decline. If you Christians hadn't come along with your wimpish way of doing things, we would still be ruling, you know, Scotland or 
parts of Germany or parts of Illyria and so forth. That was the accusation. And it was in response to that that one of the greatest of all Christian books on church-state relations ever written was, was composed by Augustine, the city of God, because he had to rebut the arguments that Christianity was actually bad for the Roman Empire. And in order to do so, he had to address the issue, how does a state that is Christianized or is largely Christian respond to matters of war and peace? And it was Augustine's vigorous response to that question or to that to, to rebut the charge that the Christians have been responsible for the collapse of the Roman Empire that you had just war theory. And I'm not going to go into this in great detail, but there are four principles of just war theory that I think apply to all nations today in which there are large numbers of Christians in the policy process. One is war should not take place unless it has been declared by a constituted, a duly constituted authority. You cannot have one small group of a country, one small political or ethnic group, making war and dragging the whole nation into war with some other country. It has to be, there has to be an authority that is uh, imbued with the powers of war and peace declaring war. Second, Every war should have a right motive. It should never have the motive, for example, of revenge or of gratuitous conquest or of all kinds of selfish endeavors that cast uh, a very bad image upon the war-making power. And even more important than this, Christians should never engage in a war unless they know what kind of peace they want at the end of it. A relatively modern French diplomat, Talleyrand, said exactly the same thing. He said, you should never go to war unless you know what kind of peace you want. Very profound thought, because it means every part of war should be, if you are reluctantly forced into it, should be subordinate to the ultimate notion of the kind of post-war justice situation that is fair to the people involved. Again, I'm not going to dwell too much on that, but I'll give you one example of where that particular concept, what kind of peace you want, was admirably carried out by a Christianized nation, namely the conduct of the United States after defeating Germany and Japan in World War II. The occupation of Germany and Japan was admirable. It was not vengeful. It was not acquisitive. It sought to remodel those, those devastated societies which had embarked upon wholly destructive policies in a manner that would allow future generations of those countries to be vigorous, good citizens in the global community. And it worked. Germany truly repented of what Germans had done to the Jews under Hitler, admirably faced, to, faced up to their, uh, their historical sins, if you like, and set to work building a, a very successful economy and society, a very peaceful economy and society. 
Uh, one might say that Japan wasn't quite, and maybe hasn't been quite as open about its own past as the Germans have been. But nevertheless, Japan in, uh, constructed a constitution still in effect after World War II in which it explicitly repudiated war as an instrument of national policy. The only case, the first case historically of any nation denying itself the right to go to war. I mean, that's striking. Now, Japan, of course, does have rather powerful self-defense forces. But the whole thinking of the Japanese people since World War II has been strongly opposed to the employment of Japanese troops for any war-making purposes, even those uh, initiated and um, legitimized by the United Nations. So, getting to the second of the four principles, the United States in recent history has clearly followed one of those Augustinian principles very well. Third principle, proportionality. If your neighboring, the country next door to you, destroys one of your border villages, that doesn't give you the right to obliterate its capital city. And that's sort of common sense, although it's common sense that has been more often ignored than accepted in much of the conflict of this century. Proportionality. You use proportional methods to deal with aggressors. You don't set out to destroy them utterly. And fourth, treatment of civilians and non-combatants. This is one of the key principles of Christian just war theory, that the maximum effort should always go into preventing civilians being harmed, much less killed. And non-combatants of any kind should be respected and prisoners should be treated well. And those principles, by and large, were accepted throughout much of the history of the West with some horrible exceptions. The Spanish treatment of indigenous American peoples in Central and South America was pretty horrific. Other Christianized powers have been um, very um, uh, bad in certain situations historically. I, we can go into that if you want, but doesn't, you don't have to be particularly historically alert to remember cases where foreign countries of, uh, of our Christian tradition have gone to war for purposes which we now recognize were really invalid. And let me just very briefly touch on one obvious one. The, and I say this as a former Brit, the British imposition of unequal treaties upon China in the 19th century in order to maintain opium trade. British policy was basically directed by opium traders living in Hong Kong who wanted to continue an incredibly profitable commerce at the expense of the Chinese people. And the British government was dragooned into supporting this policy. And it was very unjust. I'm happy to say many evangelical Christian leaders in Britain strongly oppose this, and many, uh, many Christian politicians strongly opposed it, although unfortunately it went ahead. Now, not to, to take too much time, I just want to come to an issue that really is constantly coming up today. Should a power like the United States, which is a major power, and it has lots of Christians, should it deploy its strength overseas 
in the cause of what you might call human rights, especially Christian human rights? Should we be spanking other countries because those countries mistreat their own citizens very badly? Very important question. And there are certain historical um, precedents. Oliver Cromwell, the British Puritan who, as you know, defeated King Charles and then had his head cut off in 1649, was a very devout Puritan, greatly anguished by the mistreatment of French Huguenots by the French government and strongly advocated, although he was turned down, British soldiers actually being sent there to help support the Huguenots uh, facing the kind of persecution that they were facing. So you have a tradition in the Protestant nations of wanting to use state power to defend fellow Christians. Now, sometimes it doesn't even get down to fellow Christians. One of the greatest influences on English domestic and foreign policy in the 19th century was William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, as many of you are aware, at the age of 27 in uh, 1786, wrote in his journal, I believe God has set before me two great objects, the abolition of the slave trade and the reformation of manners in England. And I hasten to say reformation of manners didn't mean telling people how to hold a spoon properly. It meant a change in the entire lifestyle. And to an astonishing degree, the England of 1850 was radically different from the England of 1750 radically Christianized, an end to gin alcoholism that plagued most of the British cities, an end to the throwing out of unwanted children, dramatic reduction of the crime rate, the introduction of uh, literacy for poor people, tremendous uh, efforts to change the conditions of society, and a great concern for things overseas. William Wilberforce himself was a member at different times of about 89 committees concerned with reform of justice in India, reform of prison conditions in Russia. So evangelicals in the 19th century played a big role in setting the agenda for foreign policy. And here's a very interesting point. Slavery was abolished in Great Britain in 1833 that is, the slave trade was abolished. Slavery itself was abolished in 1807. You could not, as a British subject, own slaves from 1807 onwards. And from 1807 until the 1860s, the Royal Navy, the British Navy, sailed thousands of miles around the world for no purpose of national aggrandizement in this case than the freeing of slaves being transported on the slave ships of other countries. A book was written a couple of years ago that estimated something like 300,000 slaves were freed by the efforts of the Royal Navy, mostly sailing the Indian Ocean, um, interrupting the slave trade along the east coast of Africa. So that was a clear case of foreign policy clearly being enacted in the cause of justice with no particular benefit for Britain. I mean, uh, the countries whose slaves Britain freed were in no position to confer any great advantage to the British people as a result of that act of British government policy. It's come right up to today. 
I think any sensible person realizes that you cannot subordinate the national security of your nation to particular human rights concerns, even Christian human rights concerns, even when you have a Christian president. You have to keep a balance between the need to defend your national interests, hopefully in a non-aggressive context, and the need to reach out and help beleaguered peoples, beleaguered Christians, but also beleaguered Muslims. Uh, it's often forgotten in some parts of the world that the powers that basically protected the Muslims of uh, former Yugoslavia from being slaughtered were Christian powers. It wasn't Arab countries that uh, said, let's launch uh, a war to uh, liberate Kosovo from Slobodan Milosevic. It was Christian powers. Now, why? Because there is a component, and there has been a component in American foreign policy, I think a healthy component, although it should not dominate everything, of concern for justice in parts of the world where it clearly is being suppressed or denied by certain kinds of rule. God's foreign policy for any nation, but obviously for a nation with a predominant Christian population like our own, must be a policy of justice, must be a policy of mercy, but it must also be a policy of humility. And one of the areas where I think the United States is justifiably vulnerable to criticism is the perception that we are arrogant. And sometimes we sound arrogant. We certainly sound quite arrogant to people who don't live within our borders. As any American who's traveled extensively around the world, even in those countries which are traditionally friendly to the United States, there is a perception that we throw our weight around, that we talk our way through things, that we are kind of selfish, one of the words sometimes used, unilateralist. And that objection has to be addressed. I mean, I'm not going to deal with that tonight because it's a very complicated issue, and I don't think that's what we need to, to go into. But I'm encouraged by one thing. It was striking to me during the, um, the uh, Gore-Bush debates in the presidential race that we thought we would know all about on November the 8th, but didn't, um, was the second debate, which was on foreign policy. And I was struck by the way then-candidate Bush three times brought up the word humility. Now, you may say by saying that the United States should be humble, he was just kind of trying to score brownie points. Maybe he was. But that's not a bad way to score brownie points, in my view. The leader or the aspiring leader of a great nation who brings up the need for humility, that's not a bad way to start. And let's all pray that uh, the president, Bush in the White House, has not forgotten that stirring call at that time. After World War II, The United States seemed to be, except for the Soviet Union, virtually uh, unchallenged in its global reach and global power. And I think we need to be grateful that wise leadership made possible the preservation of peace and the containment of what at one time was a very expansionist Soviet Union. 
And in so doing, we pave the way for the restoration of the societies of Eastern Europe and of Russia to democratic rule and to uh, domestic policies that moved away from tyranny towards the kind of societies that most of us, I think, would all prefer to live in. Foreign policy is difficult. Just as it's sometimes said, war is too complicated to be left for the generals, so foreign policy is too complicated to be left merely to diplomats. In fact, I've sometimes, although I admire diplomats very much, some of them do a wonderful job, in a way a diplomat is, is to the course of a nation as a mechanic is to your car. A mechanic, if he's a good mechanic, makes sure that your car runs properly, that it doesn't break down, that it has enough oil, etc., etc. But he doesn't determine which direction your car goes in. You're the driver. And we, voting Americans, are also the driver. We elect administrations that take certain courses of action or don't take other courses of action. That's a very solemn responsibility. And I think as Christians, although we justifiably differ on precise points of how we should behave in this situation or that situation, what our policy should be, the nature of our response can and should be rooted in a just war concept of international relations. Proportionality, motive, what kind of peace, treatment of civilians and non-combatants, and on whose authority. Those principles of Augustine, I think, in an amazing way, are strikingly apt for today's world. And I pray that just as we have a patriotic nation eager to serve the flag, we also have a nation that is thoughtful and kind. And if it's not too much of a word to use, humble. Thank you.